caution must be exercised with regards to statements concerning the Catholic doctrine of purgatory and also the doctrine of predestination. But these matters in no way affect the overall excellence of the book, a truly delightful presentation of a tremendous truth. It consequently deserves a warm reception from the Catholic reading public. This is Pints with Jack, Season 7, Episode 9. C.S. Lewis in America. After Hours with Dr. Mark Knoll. Welcome to Pints with Jack, the podcast where we read through the works of C.S. Lewis. And today is an After Hours episode. And the opening quotation came from a review of The Great Divorce. I would humbly say Lewis's best book. <laughs> it was a review from Dominicana, which was a publication produced by those in formation at the Dominican House of Studies. And today we're going to be looking at the reception of C.S. Lewis in the United States, and this review was quoted in the book which we're going to be discussing. If you've ever wanted to know how Lewis was received by Catholics, Protestants, and the mainstream secular press in the United States, please stay tuned. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Mark Knoll. Dr. Knoll is an American historian specializing in the history of Christianity in the United States. He is a Reformed Evangelical Christian, and in 2005 was named by Time magazine as one of the 25 most influential evangelicals in America. He holds the position of Research Professor of History at Regent College, having previously been the Francis A. McEnany Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame. And he is the author of C.S. Lewis in America, Readings and Reception, which we'll be discussing today. Dr. Mark Knoll, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you. I'm uh, delighted to be here with you. Well, thank you for writing a book that is just about the perfect subject for me. You know, it's really got everything. Catholicism, Protestantism, uh, the reception of people from Britain and the United States. It's, it's just about my sweet spot in terms of uh, subjects to read about. Well, today I'm enjoying a Best Day Brewing Kolsch. Are you drinking anything? I've got water to hand in case the old uh, throat chokes up. <laughs> well, that'll do. Cheers. Well, I gave some brief biographical information at the start of the episode, but would you mind telling us about yourself and filling in any missing details? I am primarily a historian of the Christian faith in the United States and Canada, a little bit in Britain and in the latter part of my career when I already had tenure and didn't have to worry about being an expert. I actually tried to write about the general history of Christianity in the world recently. I taught for almost 30 years at Wheaton College, where I was introduced to serious study of C.S. Lewis, mostly by enjoyable occasions speaking with the directors of the Wade Center, which is a special Lewis collection site at uh, Wheaton College. I then taught for 10 years at the uh, University of Notre Dame in the history department with a focus mostly on religion and religion and economic life, religion in the Civil War, religion and colonial life. In a very enjoyable time, uh, I retired with a few PhD students left to finish in 2016. They were all done uh, at the start of the pandemic. I, my last student, unfortunately, had to be interviewed like we're doing it today, just because meetings were not allowed. I, I'm not a Lewis scholar, although I've, I certainly enjoyed reading Lewis's books over the years and was delighted to ask uh, in 2013, actually, to take part in a commemoration 50 years uh, from C.S. Lewis's death. While at Wheaton and, and enjoying the activities of the Wade Center, I did. I was nervous about what I think could be called Lewis adoration. People were so impressed with uh, C.S. Lewis that his surroundings uh, fell away. Maybe even that long ago, I had decided, well, if there's ever an opportunity 
to try to do some explication of Lewis against his historical background, I'd take that opportunity. And, and that opportunity eventually came along and, and eventually led to the uh, book. And there are several books out there which have examined Lewis's reception in the United States. So what was it that you thought had been left un- unsaid and unexamined? Good books. Uh, George Marsden has a wonderful uh, biography of Amir Christianity and its reception. Stephanie Derrick and Alan Snyder have done broader studies of Lewis's reception. Nothing that I found uh, contradicted any of those, but they did not have a detailed examination of the American reception of Lewis before he became phenomenally popular with the publication in 1950 of the first of the Narnia books, and then in 1952 with Mere Christianity. The opportunity, actually, to do a pretty systematic study of American reviews came about at Notre Dame because uh, through the good offices of the chairman of the history department, John McGreevy, I was able to have my wife, Maggie, who's a librarian, uh, actually work on reviews of C.S. Lewis in response to the request by Chris Mitchell, then the director of Wheaton's Wade Center, to prepare a paper for 2013. The dates, 1935 to 1947, are inclusive from the first review of a Lewis book in an American publication that we could find, late December of 1935, shortly after the American publication of The Pilgrim's Regress, through the end of 1947, when, as people know, Lewis was featured on the cover of Time magazine in one of his issues in September. And just checking over publication dates today in preparation for our uh, talk, the book on miracles actually appeared almost exactly at the same time as the cover of Lewis on, on Time magazine. So that that 12-year period included American academic readers during the, the latter part of the Depression, many, many American readers uh, during the days of World War II, and, that, and then a growing number after World War II, but not not yet the phenomenal popularity that would come with uh, in the early 50s with Amir Christianity and The Lion, the Witch, and The Wardrobe. Your book has got a really interesting structure to it. Would you mind just talking us through it? The Wade Center at Wheaton College has an endowed lecture series, uh, endowed by the Hansen family, designed to have uh, the Wheaton College community interact with the resources of the collection featuring C.S. Lewis and those who were influential with him. So it's, it's Lewis and then his contemporaries, Charles Williams, Dorothy L. Sayers, Owen Barfield, G.K. Chesterton, George MacDonald, and of course, J.R.R. Tolkien, and people my age uh, in the superannuated category don't need any special stimulation or special encouragement to be excited about C.S. Lewis, but the students. Some of them have never heard of, of, of C.S. Lewis. So the lecture series is designed to have somebody connected to Wheaton College present three lectures for which then faculty at Wheaton are asked to comment briefly on the lectures, and then they're, they're pulled together into a, a book. There have been, I think, seven or eight of these so far, and they've, they've covered a, a wide range of topics with another one scheduled for beginning in January of, of 2024. And they have been a good way to, to engage the Wheaton College community. And then thanks to the willingness of InterVarsity Press to publish the lectures, they have engaged a wider community. So there is a desire to have some kind of uh, at least semi-serious attention to one of the Wade Center authors, an opportunity to have uh, other Wheaton-connected people pitch in with the desire of drawing in more of the Wheaton crowd to the authors, but then where possible opening up a broader audience to the, the themes of the lectures as well. 
And so your book has uh, three sections for each of those lectures. Uh, the first one surprised Roman Catholics as Lewis's first and most appreciative readers. The second, like a fresh wind, reception in secular and mainstream media. And the third one, Protestants also approve, but evangelicals only slowly. <laughs> and you've also got an appendix with a couple of articles from America. What were they about? The appendix includes the first full-scale American appreciation of Lewis by a man named Charles Brady, an English professor at Canisius College, a Jesuit organized uh, university in Buffalo, New York. He published in mid-1944 two articles in the Jesuit uh, Weekly America, basically promoting C.S. Lewis, but doing it in a way that was fuller and with more attention to all of Lewis's publication than anything coming in America for at least maybe eight or ten years following. Eventually, end of the 1940s, there's some really good uh, scholarship on Lewis by the uh, Episcopal priest and, and English professor, uh, Chad Walsh, who taught at uh, Beloit College in Wisconsin. But the two articles that are appended to the book are, are really the best thing done in America on Lewis, probably until the mid or late 1950s. And having the permission from America to put them into the book was a real bonus because of what was at least somewhat of a surprise to me. I knew a little bit of this story ahead of time, but somewhat of a surprise to me how favorable Roman Catholic reviewers were for Lewis, and then how penetrating, at least a few of them, like, like the English professor from uh, Canisius Brady, how penetrating they were in drawing together an analysis of Lewis's popular works, so the Screw Tape Letters, the, the Ransom Trilogy, with Lewis's scholarship on the late medieval or early modern British literature. So the chapter on Catholic reception of Lewis makes a big deal of, of Brady's insights and his understanding of Lewis, and so we were delighted to have the, the permission to reprint this. Significantly, when Brady sent these articles to Lewis, he responded, that Brady was the first person, I think he used the phrase, to make up Lewis's work entirely. And so, and so he, he was quite impressed. Later, Brady went on to review others of Lewis's works individually, and then also uh, works by Charles Williams, Tolkien, and, and some of the other associates of Lewis. But we, we were just delighted to have the opportunity to have this appendix to show the level of serious engagement by an American but also to, to uh, underscore how unusual that level of engagement was by anyone at that time in, in the 40s uh, concerning Lewis. Let's dig a little bit deeper into that first section then. Uh, surprised Roman Catholics as Lewis's first and most appreciative readers with a response written by Karen J. Johnson. So, my people, uh, how did Catholics first receive Lewis? I think you've already given enough clues that it was very favorable. Almost entirely. Uh, now, quotation you read is an interesting one because in the maybe 25 or 30 uh, reviews in Catholic periodicals, we discovered, and there were a few uh, reviews by Catholics in broader American, New York, the New York Times, New York Herald Tribune, and one or two other places. In the articles we found, there were occasional not exactly criticism, but observation that Lewis doesn't really say much about the church. And then there are one or two quite serious academic type critiques, not so much of Lewis, but because of the enthusiasm by American Catholic readers for Lewis. Actually, it was an American Jesuit who picked up on uh, something published in England by a serious Roman Catholic scholar who said, 
you know, it's part of the canon law that there needs to be special permission if a Catholic reviewer favorably recommends a work not by a Catholic. And none of the things we read by uh, Catholics at Lewis had, had made any kind of canonical uh, gesture to uh, make their recommendation. Catholic reviewers of Lewis liked fell into two categories. One, the, the Charles Brady's, the English professor who wrote the, the definitive articles on Lewis, really liked Lewis's imaginative use of classical English, Greek, Roman literary history. In the re review that he published, I think he said, reading Lewis is like walking through a whispering gallery of the great literature of, of the West. And of course, the, the creativity and, and the great divorce, uh, which of course comes later than Brady uh, wrote, creativity in the Ransom Trilogy and uh, Screw Tape Letters. And another segment of Catholic critique really appreciated Lewis's emphasis on objective moral values. In fact, uh, in the early 1950s, one of the prominent Catholic philosophers of his day, Leo Ward, in an article about natural law, said we have a number of Catholics writing about natural law, but none of them have written as well about the potential of natural law as C.S. Lewis, and, and a reference to the works in which uh, Lewis begins his apology for Christian faith by appealing to the innate sense of right and wrong that is present everywhere. So there was a, a kind of receptivity grounded in what had been the longstanding Catholic tradition of, of arguing from what was present naturally in all people to what is revealed, especially by grace, to those who, who understand Christ and the scriptures, along with then this literary and historical appreciation for Lewis's incorporation of so much Renaissance and early modern information stuff in the academic works, but then also hidden behind the more popular works. I never found this explicitly, but I also had the feeling that in the 1940s, American Catholics really were ready to move beyond the kind of intellectual isolation that, that characterized Catholic intellectual life in the United States at this time. Clearly, the Catholics had maintained a high educational platform in many, many places, but culturally, intellectually, politically, they were isolated. And I had the feeling that, that being able to commend a figure like Lewis, safely out of the American orbit, not identified with any particular political or denominational Protestant, be able to recommend a, a figure like Lewis was a kind of way to say, well, we Catholics can also discuss and contribute things in the, in the intellectual mainstream. So that, that was overwhelmingly positive, uh, uh, the most enthusiastic set of readers with, as I, I noted, just a, a few uh, reservations by a few authors thinking, well, Lewis just doesn't really talk about the church, and that is really important for us as Catholics. But it's funny because one of his earliest books, The Pilgrim's Regress, one of the major characters is Mother Kirk, and that seems to result in an awful lot of reviewers actually just simply assuming that he was Catholic. Yes, indeed. And in fact, that the first conservative Protestant, you could say evangelical review of Lewis, did appear early on in 1936. There's almost nothing thereafter for a, for a long, long time. And this reviewer, a Presbyterian minister by the name of Wellbon, did make that assertion. He said, well, this is, this is an interesting book, but it's by a Catholic, and uh, there's much in it we dis I disagree with, but there's a lot in it that, that we should take note of. He sent his review to Lewis. Lewis wrote back and said, excuse me, 
but I'm, I'm not a Catholic. I'm a member of the Church of England. And uh, although I have Catholic <laughs> friends, you should not confuse my leaving Mother Kirk with, with any kind of my membership as a Catholic. Privately, Lewis wrote to his friends, he was saying he was quite upset with Sheed and Ward, his American publisher, for advertising copy that made it mm. sound like perhaps Lewis was a Catholic. Uh, he was, he was, Lewis was actually quite dismissive, and he used the word the papist. He was dismissive of the papist and what they're trying to do in abusing his own work. <laughs> that misunderstanding was, of course, cleared up uh, fairly soon, but, but it was a very interesting one, uh, marking this, this very early reception of, of Lewis in, in the U.S. Well, actually, on that point, would you mind telling us who the papists Sheed and Ward actually were, and how it was that they got connected with Lewis? Sheed and Ward were independent publishers in England who, who were at the forefront of what could be called an intellectual revival amongst, amongst Catholics. I'm trying to re recall the advertisement that they placed in the New York Times. It, it included the Pilgrim's Regress. I'm pretty sure it included works by G.K. Chesterton and a couple of other, maybe English Catholics, maybe even uh, Continental Catholics, without pausing to note, as, as would have been extraneous, without pausing to note that Lewis was a, a Protestant interloper in, the, in this set of Catholic. They did establish a, uh, an American branch uh, to publish works of, of Catholic renewal, Catholic intellectual revival. And uh, I'm not exactly sure how they uh, obtained from J.M. Dent, who was Lewis's British publisher. I'm not exactly sure how they obtained the rights, but three years after the Pilgrim's Regress appearance in England, it was brought out by Sheet and Ward in the United States. Well, let's move from us papists over to uh, the mainstream secular media. How was Lewis received in America by this particular group? This too was uh, something of a surprise, particularly after the publication of the Screwtape Letters. There was almost unanimous American popular interest in Lewis. So we found reviews in the New York Times, New York Herald Tribune, the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, the Los Angeles Times several uh, local and regional newspapers, all really quite excited about the screw tape letters published in the U.S. in early 1943. Earlier, there had been a small group of American academics who had uh, responded, for the most part, favorably to Lewis's work. The Allegory of Love on Spencer and uh, Romantic Poetry of Late Middle Ages, Renaissance Period, was well regarded. Uh, Roland Bainton, the uh, later renowned for, as a biographer of Martin Luther, uh, reviewed one of Lewis's books uh, uh, positively. Arthur O. Lovejoy, well known for his book on the Great Chain of Being, also was impressed with, with Lewis's work. But th these notices came in academic publications and did not really have a, a broad uh, popular impact. It was different after the publication of the Screwtape Letters. All of the Ransom novels received a, a lot of press. And then once the, the booklets from Lewis's broadcast talks began to appear, they too were treated in, in the general press, not as often as the uh, imaginative works. Right in 1947, the publication of Lewis's book on miracles was also, was also treated in both uh, popular and, and academic presses in the uh, United States. Again, the uh, reception is, is positive. The difference with the Catholic reviewers is that not very many, maybe maybe none, of the reviewers in the general American media could tie together what Lewis was trying to do <laughs> with the imaginative works and then his, his literary scholarship. The exception, again, is, was the individual I mentioned, Chad Walsh, who did publish uh, in Atlantic 
1946, maybe 1947, C.S. Lewis, Apostle to the Skeptics, which became then the basis for a book in 1948 or 1949, which was an appreciative and fairly thorough uh, analysis of Lewis's popular and then apologetical works. But none, none of the uh, authors in, in uh, this segment of the American populace or in the, the Protestant world had the, the intellectual resources to do what a few of the Catholic reviewers had done, is to link together the popular, the apologetic, and the academic works. There were a, a couple of uh, dismissive accounts of Lewis. Uh, they're, they're very rare. The most interesting one was published in the New Republic, which was a kind of, at the time, leftist, uh, self-regarding, avant-garde publication by Alistair Cook, young man, uh, before he had begun the very popular letter to America that the BBC did, I think, weekly for 30 or 40 years, and well before his time as, as hosting the Masterpiece Theater on PBS, he, he wrote about Lewis as a kind of mountebank, as a kind of uh, a fraudster who, uh, during times of great unrest like World War II, somehow snookered uh, the American public and thinking he was telling him something important. Quite an unusual uh, review, which, which several others over the next couple of years responded to. It. And uh, there was not a lot of analysis in, in Cook's uh, re review, but it, it, was, it was interesting to read somebody who just didn't like what Lewis was doing at all. There were a couple academic reviews of, of uh, Lewis's uh, arguments in the broadcast talks, uh, especially concerning the argument for objective moral values as, as pointing to the Christian faith. But even here, the serious reviews of those works were, were appreciative, even when they occasionally made uh, criticism as well. So once, once the screw tape letters is published, Lewis is known in, in the general press. There's uh, probably over the course of the years we looked at, uh, seven or eight, maybe eight or nine reviews in the New York Times, just about that many in the New York Herald Tribune, which had a very extensive book reviewing uh, operation. Saturday Review, Lewis actually appears on the cover of Saturday Review several years earlier than he did on the cover of Time because uh, of Leonard Bacon, a distinguished uh, poet and essayist, and one of the editors at the Saturday Review was so impressed with the, the Space Trilogy, the Ransom Trilogy. So in general, uh, not the kind of depth from uh, Catholic reviewers, but uh, in general, quite quite positive. And this is the era of the, the discussions with Sister Penelope about sneaking past watchful dragons. And it does seem that, yeah, that was completely doable because people didn't understand what Lewis was doing. Although it is quite surprising that that seemed to also be mostly missed by Lewis's Protestant audience. So let's talk about them. How did they assess Lewis? The Protestant reception of, of Lewis was pretty close to the general public with a, a great deal of excitement about the imaginative works, great deal of appreciation for the combination of creativity, storytelling, the use of the, the space genre. Uh, most Protestant reviews, the broadcast talks were, were positive as well. The journal that was maybe the most tepid was the Christian Century, which also had one of the most interesting articles somewhere toward, toward the end of World War II, an Episcopal minister in Philadelphia area, I believe, was sent to Oxford to interview Lewis because of all the attention that uh, American readers were, were giving to them. He returned and, and wrote a, a kind of snooty review saying, well, Lewis is, uh, doesn't seem to be interested in Soren Kierkegaard. He, he doesn't know anything about existentialism. 
he's a hale and hearty fellow. And it was a kind of a poo-pooing of, of a review. The revealing thing was that Lewis tolerated the review until the priest said, well, you know, some of my uh, parishioners really like what you're doing. And one of them is the poet W.H. Auden. And Lewis then uh, woke up because Auden had earlier positively reviewed uh, The Great Divorce. And uh, Lewis had written about Auden's poetry, not liking it very much because it was modern, but he was greatly intrigued uh, and quizzed the, the Episcopal minister about Auden because Lewis had heard that Auden had uh, made public statements about his commitment to traditional Christian faith. So this article in the Christian Century that really was kind of poo-pooing Lewis turns out to be very interesting in its revelation that W.H. Auden was really quite a strong fan of uh, C.S. Lewis. Most of the press in the, in the mainline Protestant groups was uh, appreciative. Some went into some details, but none of it reached the level that, that Charles Brady and a few of the other Catholic reviewers had reached or that Chad Walsh would, would later uh, develop. In the evangelical or fundamentalist world, which was, again, not entirely surprising to me, but, but quite interesting in itself, th there was not really a lot of interest in Lewis. The one exception were very conservative Presbyterians associated with Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And in, in the early 40s, there were several articles on Lewis in, in the journal of the Westminster Seminary. These articles expressed a great deal of enthusiasm for Lewis, but, but were really troubled by the same thing that was appealing to Catholic reviewers. <laughs> Lewis's positing of an objective morality as the basis from which Christian commitment could grow ran up against the apologetical style that had come to fashion with these conservative Presbyterians that argued without a complete commitment to biblical worldview and biblical understanding, there's really no way of drawing someone convincingly to, to the Christian faith. The reviewers of Lewis in the Westminster Theological Journal, <laughs> the reviews were really interesting because people were excited. They thought Lewis was the best thing to come along in a long time, but then they had to pause toward the end and expound on, on why his apologetical methods wasn't too good. That was the only group amongst the conservative Protestant evangelical world that took Lewis seriously until we get to the 1940s, late 44, 45, 46, and then uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship begins to have articles in its, its uh, journal for college students, and there's a beginning of a warmer reception, but nothing like the kind of all-out enthusiasm that would come in the evangelical world in the 1950s and, and following. So my reasoning was that, that the base between fundamentalists and modernists early in the 20th century had pushed more traditional American Protestants away from learning, away from an engagement with, with serious scholarship. And they were just on, on the, in the verge of coming back to that on the back of, of, of what C.S. Lewis was, was writing. So the general Protestant world was, is really a lot like the general public in its appreciation for Lewis. The evangelical Protestant world slowly begins to catch up. And uh, by the early 1950s, it will be one of the leaders. But, but it wasn't in the time that this research for this book was carried out. Mm. I was a little surprised when I read about the uh, Westminster Seminary-based objections to Lewis, the sort of commitment to sort of presuppositional apologetics as the only way to do things. Because 
you actually see Lewis using those sorts of arguments in places. I don't know how you'd quite categorize him in terms of apologetics, but maybe cumulative case would be a, a pretty pretty good example. But why were they so committed to that particular way of approaching evangelism? Well, the, the objections came through most clearly when Lewis spoke of the Tao as a kind of universal human char- characteristic. The conservative Presbyterians were in the process of negotiating with, with the more moderate and even there were a few liberal Presbyterians, not, not really too many, who were convinced that the standards of the academy, reason, scientific, objectivity, were, were the best way to ground the Christian faith. And what we have in the early breakaway small Presbyterian groups, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, eventually the Bible Presbyterian Church, is a turn toward uh, apologetical styles from the continent, especially from um, the Netherlands, especially with people like uh, Abraham Kuyper, who had made uh, worldview thinking foundational to their understanding of how Christian faith should be presented. The main figure at uh, Westminster who was the promoter of presuppositional apologetics was uh, Cornelius Van Til. He was a a powerful thinker, and and he was the dominant uh, voice at Westminster on matters apologetical right from its founding in, in the late uh, 1920s all, all the way through his death in the 1970s and then, and then even beyond. That's a little bit of uh, Presbyterian inside baseball that got wrapped up with C.S. Lewis. <laughs> it still just slightly surprises me because, like I said, its presuppositional approach isn't foreign to Lewis. Uh, and the fact that they were that concerned as to sort of raise a red flag about it just seems kind of strange to me. So you've spoken a little bit about um, some of the things that the evangelicals were concerned about. What was it that sort of turned the tide? Was it just the the fact that broader groups encountered Lewis and became enthusiastic? What was it that, you know, now turns C.S. Lewis into a practical patron saint of evangelicals? I do think it started with uh, people working with college and university students. There were connections between InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in the U.S. and InterVarsity in the U.K., one of the first publications of an excerpt from Lewis's work appeared in 1945, 46, maybe, in his magazine, which is, was the publication of University Christian Fellowship. There were o- others who reported on the interest in Christian faith shown at Oxford when Lewis was in public, the university circle. The editor of his magazine, when Lewis was first spotlighted, was a man named Kenneth Taylor who would later uh, become well-known as the paraphraser of the, of the Bible, the Living Letters, Living Bible, which was an effort to break away from the, the sovereignty of the King James Version and present the scriptures to, to a wider audience. It was clearly in his interest to, to have a more engaging, a more outward-looking, a more presentable uh, way of, of offering the, the Christian faith. And Lewis exemplified that. There were also uh, the beginnings of what would See it be a kind of intellectual renewal in uh, evangelical circles. I was able for the for these lectures to draw attention to a, a Wheaton College professor, Clyde Kilby, who uh, began to read Lewis with real appreciation in, in the late uh, 1940s, and, and then actually wrote to Lewis after Cornelius Van Til had published some negative comments about uh, Lewis. Kilby wrote to Lewis and said, "Well, what do you think about these criticisms?" Lewis wrote back and said, well, I don't think I'm doing anything different than the Apostle Paul did uh, when he spoke to the mixed audience in Athens. 
then Kilby became a, a, a real fan of, of Lewis publishing works on him uh, and eventually did the collections that eventuated in the Wade Center at, at Wheaton College. And there were, there were other voices like that who probably not so much in the 40s, but in the early 50s, were hoping that the evangelical Protestant world could move beyond some of the uh, strictures of their fundamentalist past and, and engage uh, with a broader intellectual and broader theological world. Lewis from Britain was was a safe figure, even though people knew he was he was not a, a fundamentalist. There's a famous story, which has been pretty well documented, that the the fundamentalist college president Bob Jones visited Lewis in the 1950s and came back and said, "Well, you know that man smokes and that man drinks, but I do believe he is a Christian." <laughs> so it took it took a while for the shibboleths. And in the conservative evangelical world to be overcome, as you notice, once they were over, overcome, and then, of course, Lewis becomes nearly divine-like in uh, the evangelical American imagination. Yes. If you didn't manage to catch one of the 12 apostles, read Lewis. It's a close second. Yeah, St. Lewis. <laughs> and it's kind of funny how Wheaton College has championed Lewis through the Wade Center because uh, I read that back in 1967, there was actually a trial of C.S. Lewis that took place at Wheaton College, basically asking, was this the sort of man that we want influencing young minds? It was. Uh, two faculty members, actually two faculty members that I knew and, and respected both, and they actually, they actually engaged in a pretty high-level discussion of this particular question. However, the train had already left the station. There was widespread uh, student and uh, other faculty using Lewis, and, and this debate was a kind of sideshow that really didn't have much of an impact because uh, the enthusiasm for Lewis was expanding. With, however, I, I would say reservation. In the evangelical world, the kind of serious engagement that we see with Charles Brady, another man named Victor Hamm, who's, who I mentioned in the book, with Works like the preface to Paradise Lost, the discarded image, the allegory of love, even the Pilgrim's Regress, and later then the uh, Oxford history of the English literature and the what's a funny title? Sixteenth century excluding drama. <laughs> Those works don't figure much in the uh, evangelical enthusiasm for for Lewis in the way that they did, and to some extent still do in Catholic. I'm not I'm not really up on. Uh, Catholic attention to Lewis from the 1950s onwards, except I know it's there. There's at least a minor place in serious uh, philosophy, Catholic philosophy, wherever the question of natural law and apologetical reasoning comes up. Yes, uh, it was quoted by Pope Benedict XVI in, in his lectures. He cited Lewis, and I know Pope John Paul II, he had read him as well. That popularity continues. But I would also say, just from <laughs> Catholic insiders baseball, Love of Lewis is now far beyond simply his appeal to natural law. Even people that read his his other books without the explicit Mother Kirk, I know a lot of Catholics who read him and just simply assume that he's Catholic. And I think that is a testament to Lewis's novel approach at recommunicating the faith in such a way that he he doesn't leave too many telltale marks of uh, his theological pedigree. There are certain words that uh, people tend to pick up on, then start making making guesses about somebody's uh, ecclesiastical heritage. I should have mentioned that one of the things that several of the Catholic reviewers drew attention to in the 40s was what would become known as mere Christianity. They appreciated 
just what you were saying, a, a presentation of the Christian faith that was not uh, dumbed down, but neither was it uh, denominationally explicit. That strategy, in my view, has become immensely uh, significant as well as immensely popular. That, that strategy, already in the 40s, was attracting some Catholic reviewers. Mm. And I also think the era that you're reviewing uh, from Catholic writers, we're talking about the run-up to the Second Vatican Council, and there were, there were a lot of currents in the church at the time, really re-examining how is it do we engage the modern world. There were several documents that came out of the council on this exact question. And Pope John Paul II, he often spoke about the new evangelization. It's the same gospel, but represented for a modern world. And this is something I think Lewis really led the way on, and a lot of people then tried to, tried to imitate. Exactly. Well, is there anything in particular that you hope readers will take away from your book? Historically, um, it is obvious that there's a kind of broad public receptivity in the general reviewing world that probably doesn't exist any longer. You could say that, particularly during the, the stress and strain of World War II, there, there is a search for a kind of moral foundations that Lewis seemed to be providing without, apart from just a very few instances, without really addressing the world scene. And that, that is now different. I did, however, come away with, from, from the chance of rereading some of Lewis and reading some of him for the, for the first time with the combination of his qualities that Lord knows should not be imitated, but can be a kind of standard, uh, deep learning, a focus on mere Christianity instead of something denominational, creativity, which might be sui generis, uh, but then also savvy. So much of the power, I think, the reason why people are, are attracted to it is, is that the messages are clear, but they're indirect. And you do not get a lot of smacking in your face with, with the claims of Christian faith. That's, that's true for the expository works as, as well as the uh, imaginative works. The result is that even people who would disagree with him on details or even some important matters could appreciate what, what he was trying to do. And that combination of, of characteristics, along with his self-awareness, his humility, these are certainly traits that can be appropriated and imitated. I end the book, actually, with Lewis's words to his uh, Episcopal sister, talking about the dangers of being a, an apologist and how when an apologist feels that he's triumphed or she has triumphed, that's the time of greatest danger. So that, that kind of self-awareness that making a positive Christian statement is just about as dangerous for the person who makes it as it could possibly be for anyone listening, bespeaks, it seems to me, a kind of unusual self-awareness, an unusual willingness not to think too highly of himself. And that attitude, I think, is one that anyone who wants to do any kind of writing or any kind of public presentation of, of the Christian faith should imitate. Do you have any other projects in the pipeline? Lewis-related or not? I mean, for example, do you think there's a possibility of a sequel to this book, looking at Lewis's reception after 1947? My wife, Maggie, did do quite a bit of searching for reviews after 1947, but even before you get to 1950 in the first Narnia book, there's just too many. You would have to <laughs> devote many years. I have worked for 40 years on the American history of 
attitudes toward the Bible. I published a couple of big books, long books. I may do something a little bit more there. I'm also interested in other aspects of early 18th century Christian movements. But I'm also pretty old, and so uh, I don't I don't worry so much these days about just sitting down and reading something for fun and not getting to all the projects that are piling up <laughs> on my desk. I love it. Dr. Noll, thank you so much for coming on the show. My privilege. As the landlord rings the bell for final drinks, can you please tell us where people can go to find out more about you and pick up a copy of C.S. Lewis in America, Readings and Reception? book is published by InterVarsity Press. I don't really do much on uh, the internet, but I'm not too important, although some of the people I've written about in my in books are, are important. So uh, I'd be very pleased that people were able to access this book from the InterVarsity Press. Wonderful. Thanks again to Dr. Noll for coming on the show. Thanks to our sound engineers, Taylor and Sarah, our intern, Julia. Thanks to all of our listeners, patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Alex, James, Matt, Erica, Joel, Amanda, Thomas, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for our listeners and all the prayer requests in our Slack channel every Tuesday. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it online. And if you live outside the UK and the USA, please write to us telling us what you know about Lewis's reception in your country. And join us next time when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers to you.